Good morning. How's everybody? Wow. All right. Your English is good, too. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to Acts chapter 6, where we'll find ourselves this morning. If you're new here this morning, we just want to welcome you to, uh, to our fellowship. Um, for those of you that have been here a bunch, I know you get tired of me hearing this say this, but tough, it's not for your benefit, it's for the new folks, so just deal with me, or, or bear with me. But again, if anybody is new or newer to our fellowship, again, we welcome you. And, you know, our vision here in our church is to make disciples. Um, there's lots of different flavors of churches. You guys will know that if you visit the valley here. There's, there's lots of great churches doing things very similar and, and very different at the same time. But our particular 31 flavor here is, um, is Calvary Chapel. And we, we put a, a pretty big emphasis on chapter by chapter teaching through the word of God. And so we try to stay devoted to that. We want our spirit, we want our, our service to be full of the Holy Spirit and, and allow room in every one of our services for the Spirit of God to move um, in our worship, in our teaching, on your hearts and on our lives. We encourage you to bring your Bibles, a hard copy of the Bible. We know we're in an electronic age and people like their tablets and their phones and stuff, which is fine, but we still encourage you to bring a hard copy Bible, turn pages, um, write, take notes, follow along. I use a New King James Version Bible, um, not because it's better than any other version. That's not true. Okay, I always point that out because a lot of people say that. And if you're if you're a new if you're a King James only person, you're wrong. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You're just you're just um, alone. <laughs> King James is a great Bible. It's not the only good one. There's lots of good Bibles out there. Okay. Not the only inspired ones. I just happen to use a new King James because it's what I was raised with and what I like. And um, so, anyways, that's what I use. If you want to follow along, if you have your own preference, your own style, use that. Um, but we are in Acts chapter six today, uh, as we just kind of march through the book of Acts, and hopefully we can finish all of six. Only fifteen verses today, and I was hoping to even get into seven. And in the first service, I got through four verses. Yeah, that's what somebody else said. Yeah. Strange. Um, glasses will help. Okay. All right. So, hey, as we set up um, in, in Acts chapter 6, this chapter, listen, this is a teaching chapter, okay? I'm not going to preach today. This is not going to be a heartfelt, ooey-gooey message of, it's a, it's a teaching. We're teaching through the Bible. And so, um, as, as the call of God on my life is, it, my title is pastor-teacher. And, and so, sometimes, we, we have to teach. And, and it's not my forte. I'd much rather preach and, 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 and you know, proclaim the gospel. But, but I have to find a balance of doing both as we train and making disciples. Well, this is a teaching chapter, so I want you to, but I want you to stay with me and follow along today. Because this particular chapter is really key to the function of the early church. Everybody say, early church. I talked to somebody in here, and I had made mention of this. And somebody came up to me and said, Pastor, remember when you said... That, that some churches say we're going to function like the early church. They said, I came from that church. My pastors, the leaders said, and I always repeated this idea that we are going to follow and we're the early church. We're going to do things like the early church. We just want to be like the early church. Do you guys remember what I told you guys about that? I told you that's a mistake. Because we, we're supposed to learn from the early church. We're supposed to take nuggets and, and highlights from the early church. But God's intention is that God is fluid and God's church is fluid. And, and the things they did in the early church, they, they, were, they were specifically laid out for Jerusalem in the first century to an all-Jewish church. Are we in Jerusalem? 
Are we in the first century? Are we all Jewish? So then we can't do church like the early church did. Now, Acts 2.42. In Acts 2.42, we get pillars that we learn and we keep as staples in our ministry. There was four things that the early church identified as, as, as pillars for their church. Do you remember what the four things were? Breaking bread, prayer, fellowship, and the apostles' doctrine. Okay? The word of God, prayer, fellowship, and, and breaking bread. Okay, Breaking bread is also fellowship. Breaking bread is receiving communion. It's also um, sitting together with family and friends and sharing meals together as we do life together. And so God's intention for our church, and, and here in our church, we're going to look at the early church, and we're going to model those four things. But one of the things the early church did was they had communal living. They sold everything that they owned, and they all lived together. And, and, they, and then the disciples gathered everybody's possessions, their houses, their land, their cars, their goods, and they, the disciples took all of the possessions and then passed them out each day in a daily distribution as the church had need in communal living. Is that something we're supposed to follow from the early church? No, that, that we're not. Now, now, God was doing something special and specific in the early church for a reason, because God knew something. What year? We've been talking a lot about in our study about trying to help you guys understand what time frame in human history we're in. Jesus died on the cross. Fifty days later is a, is a, is a, is a high holy day in the Jewish calendar. It's one of the seven major Jewish feasts. It's called Pentecost. It's the fourth of the seven feasts. There's three yet remaining that we call the fall feasts. The fourth one and the last one prophetically fulfilled was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. What does Acts chapter 2 verse 1 say? When the day of Pentecost had fully come. So, so Jesus, Penta is, is a word that means 50. Okay? 50 days after Jesus rose from the grave was the holiday of Pentecost. 50 days exactly after Passover is Holocaust. Or holo- Did I just say Holocaust? That's bad. So bad. Pentecost. There's no backing up from that one. Like, I'm almost going to defend, like, my, how much I love the Jewish people. Like, anyway, Pentecost comes 50 days after. Jesus died in what year? 33-ish. Okay, we're not exactly sure right in there. 33. He was 33 years old when he died. And if we just take the, the, the ADBC, right, zero to 33, somewhere in the year 33, he dies. 50 days later is Pentecost. And now we're in Acts chapter 4. Three, four, five. So we're somewhere in the first couple years, 35, 36, 37. We're somewhere in this time frame. In AD 70, something is going to radically change the known world. What is that? Rome is on their way. Did the Jews know this in 35? No clue. Did the Jews know this in 45? No clue. But at some point, the, the culmination in AD 70 when Titus Vespasian sacked Jerusalem, the Roman soldiers, and he wanted to preserve. Actually, Titus Vespasian, he had a sympathy for the Jewish religion and the Jewish people. And his orders were not to destroy holy sites. And and, and somebody set the temple on fire. And the temple was covered in what? Gold. Top to bottom. More gold than you can can imagine. Solomon and then um, Herod used in rebuilding Solomon's temple, the temple that was there in the days of Jesus. And it caught fire. And the gold from the temple began to melt. 
And Jesus said before he died that not one stone would be left upon another. And and, then the disciples were positive that if the temple were ever destroyed, that would be the second coming of Jesus. That would be the end of the world as they know it, because they couldn't imagine a world without the temple in Jerusalem. But sure enough, and according to the prophecy that Jesus gave, the Roman soldiers show up in, in a siege of Israel in 67. And in a three-year siege, they surround the city and they sack the city. History tells us, for some crazy reason, that Titus Vespasian and the Roman army left in the middle of this siege. History. True. And you know what happened when the Romans left in the middle of this siege? Then they come back. They're there for another year and a half, culminating in AD 70 in the destroying of the temple, temple catching on fire, the soldiers throwing every stone off of each other, to fulfill the prophecy that Jesus gave so they could, they could get all of the gold out between the cracks. But why did Titus Vespasian and the Roman army just in the middle of this siege disappear and come back? I don't know why or where they went, but I know God's hand was in it. Because when they did disappear, all of the Christians in the early church, you know what they did? They left. But you know what God did? For 30 years, he raised up this church in, in Jerusalem in the first century. He trained them. They were learning the word of God. They were growing in Jesus. They were exploding. They were multiplying. They were evangelizing. They, they were being used by God. And, and then he took them and he put them in all these different places all over the world. And guess what happened when they, where, where they got where they were going? A church was born. And then these folks over here. And what happened over here? Church was born. And the gospel began to go out all over the world in those days. And not only that, the 12 disciples who went out and were spreading the gospel. But by God's design, he raises up this this ministry in Jerusalem called the early church. It grows, it explodes, and then he sends this crazy persecution to spread them all over the world to duplicate what was happening in Jerusalem. Isn't God's plan amazing and perfect in the way that he designed for the gospel to go through all the ends of the earth? Now, Now, something had to happen. Do you know the same kind of phenomenon happened in Germany in the 30s and the 1930s? The same type of, of persecution of the Jews and legislation that was anti-Semitic and the heat was being turned up on the Jews in Germany in the late 30s, especially by the late 30s. None of them left. They didn't leave Germany. You, you can read your histories. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in, in Um, writes an amazing chronological story of what was happening in Germany, the best read on the subject. And they never left. Why didn't the Jews leave Germany in the late 30s? Most of them, if not every one of them, that didn't miraculously escape ended up in a gas chamber. They never dreamed it would get that bad, but it was getting bad. Why didn't they leave Germany? Because they owned banks and they owned houses. And they owned jewelry stores, and they had family and investments and and life in Germany. And and they didn't want to leave all of that for nothing. Why did the early church leave Jerusalem before Titus Vespasian showed up? They didn't have nothing. Why didn't they have nothing? Because they sold everything they owned, and and they gave it. So so God was doing something supernatural and miraculous. Okay? So um, just to catch the chronological, the history here, Acts chapter 2, the church is born. Acts chapter 3, the church begins to, to, the early church begins to go through what we call, we're going to call it's growing pains and it's efforts and God is doing something. And Satan begins to um, get introduced to the scene of the early church. And no doubt Satan was there 
Last week we saw Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit. And do you remember what Peter said to Ananias and Sapphira? He said, he said, why has Satan, why have you conspired together with Satan? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So Satan is there. We have firsthand account that Peter says Satan is involved with Ananias and Sapphira. Last chapter we studied last week. Before that, Satan is there. Now look at three things that Satan has done historically. In Acts chapter 3 and 4, what was Satan's attempt to attack Peter and John? They did what? What did the Sanhedrin do to them? They threw him in jail. You guys remember? What, what else did they do to him? They beat him up. So persecution. One of the things that Satan uses in churches to attack the church, and he started with it, was persecution. Unfortunately for, fortunately for us, and I guess unfortunately for Satan, everywhere the church has been persecuted through human history, guess what's happened? Churches explode. The churches have exploded through persecution. The, the biggest, um, you know, in China to this day, they're, they're, they're actually very reminiscent of Germany in the 1930s, what they're doing in China right now. They're rewriting the Bible to, to fit their communist manifestos. They're taking out verses that don't make sense. They're, they're bulldozing churches. They're oppressing any kind of religious system that's not the government's religion. But, but in China, in the last 10 years, 20 years, China had the fastest growing church in the world, the underground church in China. Today, I think today, as we sit here today, the fastest growing move of God's Holy Spirit right now is in Iran. Praise the Lord. And more people come into faith in Jesus today in Iran than any other place in the world. Masses. Crazy because of the great persecution. So anywhere where the church has been persecuted, it always grows. Why do you think that is? God's mercy and grace. I think the other thing it does is it weeds out a lot of um, nominal Christians who just, you know, show up maybe for the wrong reasons that really don't love Jesus and are sold out for Jesus. Because if you're not really on fire for Jesus, you're not going to get beat up and thrown in prison and go through all those things in the name of a God that you don't really love and know. You know, in our, in our Western church, you know, we have folks, maybe you come because you own a business here in town and you meet customers or it's a social network or you, you come to cross the box or you come because your wife comes. But what happens when you begin to really, the church becomes, you, you, you're, you're on fire, you're born again, spirit-filled believer in Jesus Christ, then, you know, God can do so much more with a few that are crazy on fire with him than a big group of just average, just, just go through the check mark, check the boxes, and, and go through the motions type of people. And I think in persecution, there's a real fire, there's a real dependency and a real need that, that is established where people um, need Christ and they depend on him and you know, you don't know where your, your, your next provision is going to come from, so you have to pray type of thing and, and really plug into the Lord. I told you about in Russia when persecution was happening and the churches were having to meet illegally in the homes. In a particular home Bible study, remember this story? And the Russian soldiers came, they kicked in the door with their guns, and they pointed them at all the Christians, and they said, you know, you guys know this is an illegal gathering. We see your Bibles. You're all going to be under arrest. You're all going to face trial for this crime. And anybody who's not a Christian and not really involved with this group, get up and leave. And some folks jumped up and took their opportunity and scattered out the door. And some others stayed in the name of Jesus. And then when they were gone, the Russian soldiers put their guns down and locked the doors behind them and said, good, we just wanted to have a Bible study with some real Christians. And, and, and we weed out, you know, those and, and in persecution. The second thing, so Peter and John are persecuted, they're beaten and, 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 and 
um, Satan has been persecuting the church, one of the three things that he uses to attack the church, and he uses not, maybe not here in the West, it's not effective here, or he doesn't have opportunity here. We were reaching a point right in our history not that long ago, and we got a reprieve in 2016. We got a reprieve because we had eight years of our religious freedoms being robbed from us. They had a pastor in Texas um, arrested because he, he said, and he put on a marquee that homosexuality is still a sin and fired from his denomination for it. And we talked about those things where it was going to be against the law to preach certain passages of the Bible. And we're going to continue to preach the Bible because the culture changes, but the word of God does not change. And we have to fight as Christians because the world's going to say, because of those things you don't love. And that's just not simply true. We're the most loving people on planet Earth. We love because we're called to love by God. And we love all people, regardless of of what choice or sin they make. It has nothing to do with our love. It has to do with the truth of the word of God. And we want to love people. But it's not love to see somebody who's dying and going to hell and not say something or do something or love them out of that situation. That's, that's not love. I tell you guys all the time. You, you don't love a two-year-old if you let them play in the street. Oh, sweetie, you're so cute. Oh, you want to play in the street? Oh, yeah, you're just so beautiful. I love you. I can't say no. Just go play in the street. Is that love? What does love say? Get your little butt out of the street before I kick it. That's love. And, and, and again, as the world looks at us, they only care about one thing. We talked about it last week. And some of you guys came back. I wasn't sure if anybody was coming back after last week. But you guys came back. You know, they, 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 they just they want to label us because we disagree that we, you know, we hate or we're intolerant. That's just not true, you guys. And that's just where the road we're going to walk and we're going to try to do it in a loving way. You know, my personal policy as a pastor and uh, as, a, as a public figure, speaker, is I don't want to needlessly offend people. That's not my style, okay? I'm not afraid to say true. I'm not afraid to say what the Word of God says and teach what the Word of God says, and I never will shy away. I am going to have to stand before God one day, and that's more important to me than, than anything else is the account I'm going to have to give before God. But that doesn't mean that I need to be needlessly offensive. I don't get ahead of here just to offend people for no reason. And I try to be on my guard from that. And I try to be careful what I say. But at the same time, I felt like last week, too, just to let everybody know exactly where I stand, where the Word of God stands. And, um, and there, there could, again, come a day when it becomes illegal, when it becomes hate speech to teach certain things out of the Word of God. And we're just going to continue to teach the Word of God. I love people. And we need to love. What did Jesus say was the, was the greatest commandment for you as Christ followers? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love the Lord. Everybody say it with me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Hey, how many of you guys raise your hand if you've mastered that? Come on. You guys have been Christians long enough. It's the simplest and basic commandment of christianity love the lord your god with all your heart mind and soul love your neighbors yourself the most basics you know you guys always have a trump card i'll give it to you people that like to argue theology and doctrine and who's right and this and that all that stuff you know just ask them that question what's the most basic simplest tenet of christianity as a christ follower to love god with all your heart mind and soul love your neighbors yourself have you mastered that no, then let's not argue about all that other stuff. <laughs> let's, let, let's figure out first how to love God with all our heart, mind, and soul and love our neighbors ourselves. And once we get the most basic tenets of Christianity figured out, then we can argue about other theological differences and doctrines. But again, um, 
We, we, we're, we're not afraid to tell the truth, but we want to do it in love. So Satan comes, and, and in chapters two or three and four, he persecutes the church. Now, now that tactic doesn't work. So he goes to plan B. So the second thing that we see Satan do in the book of Acts in the first six chapters is he, he begins to infiltrate within the church and create hypocrisy. And hypocrisy turns people off. And hypocrisy is just an ugly animal that, that, that makes people not want to have, to have anything to do with what's going on there. And Satan fills Ananias and Sapphira's heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and commit this sin of hypocrisy. And God deals with it swiftly in the early church. And we talked about last week that we need to try as much as possible to rid ourselves of deliberate hypocrisy. Now, I would think I was fair and hopefully clear to say last week what is hypocrisy and what is not. Because again, the world is going to try to label us hypocrites if we sin. That's not the definition of hypocrisy. You're not perfect. You're going to sin as a Christ follower. You're going to make mistakes. That doesn't make you a hypocrite. But if you deliberately desire to seem more spiritual than you are, more pious, and if you pretend to be something that you're not, and you lie about it, that's hypocrisy. And that's what, what the Bible's dealing with. That's what God dealt with very swiftly in the early church because there was no room for hypocrisy. And in this case, by the grace and the mercy of God, the Holy Spirit shows up and he crushes Satan's number two attack on the early church. Now, today we're going to study the third attempt and the one that is most prevalent and, and, and in our church today. Satan still uses all three. Persecution, the church is being persecuted all over the world. Hypocrisy, the world is stinks. The church stinks from hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is just as effective as persecution in many places. The hypocrisy of TBN and certain channels where you turn on and supposedly Christian ministers and pastors are telling their church that they need $54 million to buy their fourth Learjet so they can travel around the world and preach the gospel and have no qualms about, about raising you know, one of the wealthiest people in the United States charlatan in the name of Jesus, and, and the hypocrisy is, is mind-blowing. And Satan uses it, and he still uses it, and it's effective, and it's an enemy of the gospel. Now, the third thing that Satan uses, which I think in a local church like ours, is probably, and you guys would probably agree, it is something that we deal with and is most effective, and it is division. Everybody say these with me. Persecution, hypocrisy, and division. Those are the three, Okay. So division and divisive people and divisive behaviors is what will hurt our church more than anything. I've been here seven years. We planted this church seven years ago as a small Bible study in our home, and we've grown to a little bit to where we are today. And, and the biggest problem that we've had in this church in seven years is division. And, and people that have been raised up and have come through that have tried to cause division, and we've had it. We've had it raise its ugly head. And some people, I think, just like Ananias and Sapphira, Satan filled their hearts and they, you know, and we were able actually to reconcile and deal with them and love them, and and they repented, and um, and 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 things are good and still here today. And others, we had to give them the left hand of fellowship. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. That's what the left hand says. You know, the Lord does lots of lots of um, math here in the Book of Acts. In Acts two forty seven, it says the Lord did what? He added to the church daily those that were being saved. In Acts chapter 5, the Lord did some subtraction. He did some blessed subtraction, and, and he subtracted some folks from the church, Ananias and Sapphira. They were causing trouble and were potentially going to cause a lot of trouble. And then here in Acts chapter 6, if I ever get to it, 
Let's look at it. Verse number one. Now, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So it says, pay attention. You can highlight it. The disciples were in verse six. Verse, I'm sorry, verse one. The disciples were what? Multiplying. So we see God adding, subtracting, and now multiplying. So the church is going through an enormous growth spurt. It happens in all of our churches. Calvary Chapel started in the late 60s. By the early 70s, um, Chuck Smith was a church of 25 people and and began to um, raise up pastors and leaders. His church began to grow. They were meeting then and they were putting tents up in Costa Mesa because the amount of people that were coming couldn't fit in the buildings they were building fast enough until they finally built a sanctuary. Chuck was raising up um, uh, men that were coming and getting saved in his church. He was discipling them five nights a week in his house. And then he was sending these men out to start churches just like uh, like his and, and just simply by teaching the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. By 1994, Calvary Chapel was the largest non-denominational um, um, church in, in the world. And so the, the, it just exploded. And through that explosion of, of churches and of growth, there's, there's lots of growing pains. And, and sometimes, you guys, listen, here in our church and other churches, what happens is you don't anticipate it, and it's very difficult to be proactive, so you end up being reactive to some of those growing pains and some of those problems. And, and as you notice, and as I notice, and as things happen here in our church where we're growing and it's causing some, some growing pains, you know, people say, oh, that's a good problem to have. I agree, I agree. It is a good problem to have when you're growing. And then those are the problems you have that are created by that. But it's still a problem. It still needs to be addressed and dealt with. And, and just being gracious as we grow and communicating. And, you know, I used to forever, even in this church, I would chase people down that left. And I would call them and, and what, you know, why did you leave and what happened? And, you know, I'm not in that business anymore. If you leave because you get mad, I'm, I'm not, I won't call you. I won't chase you down. I won't invite you back. My, my policy is simple. If you, don't have, if you don't love me enough or have enough decency to come talk to me before you get mad and leave, then I'm not going to chase you down and call you because I have an open door. I, I have a very open door policy. And if you'll come to me first with any problem, issues, suggestions, we can talk. We can go out to coffee. We can resolve it. We can get elders and leaders and other people in our church involved to, to, to fix the problem, to make it better. Our heart is to fix it. Our heart is to make it better. Our heart is to be the best that we can be. But, but if you don't communicate those things and come to us and talk to us, then, um, you know, we, we're, we're, we can't fix those. You just get mad and leave, then you're, you're one of the blessed subtractions that I talk about. You know, my pastor used to say something that, you know, really affected me. And, and it sticks with me to this day. He said, you don't want to be more of a blessing gone than you were while you were there. And I've always thought, well, that's true. I don't ever want to be more of a blessing gone. Like, you know, some people disappear and people around them are like, man, whew, they're such a troublemaker. I'm glad they're gone. And others leave. I've had so many leave that have moved out of state, that have taken jobs in other places. And our church was heartbroken when they left. They were so involved and, and, and you know, such a blessing to us and to our ministry and our church. And there was others, like I said, that have been maybe not so much of a heartache when they left, but more of a blessing when they left. You never want to be more of a blessing gone than you are here. And the Lord will try to raise up those within the church that cause division. Listen, there's no perfect church. We never claim to be a perfect church. You guys have heard it, right? Some people travel from church to church to church to church looking for the perfect church. You'll never find it. And if you do, 
You know how it goes, right? Don't join it, because if you join the perfect church, you'll ruin it. It won't be perfect anymore after you join it. You know, and, and it's it's not that we don't have problems. And I don't make excuses that, oh, we, we, we can just do what I, what I say is, hey, let's be a family, though. Let's deal with it together. Let's deal with it within. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us if the problem that's perceived here in chapter 6 was a real problem or a perceived problem. But I think we can agree that the problem was exacerbated. The problem was grown and made into something maybe it didn't need to be when they started complaining. And again, you know, there's seven things the Bible says that God hates. How many of those things, of those seven things that God hates, do you want to be guilty of? Do you want to be on the side of things that God hates? I personally don't want to do it, want to associate myself with anything that God hates, or any behavior, or any position. And the Bible simply says God hates those that cause division among the body of Christ, those that sow discord among the body of Christ. So I never want to be guilty of causing division. Simple thing, simple litmus test. Look in your mirror and ask yourself what you're doing. Is it bringing people together or is it causing people to divide? Is it bringing the church together or is it dividing the church? And here is the attack in Acts chapter 6, the third of Satan's kind of big three attacks upon the church, is, is causing division within the church. And I've seen many churches, good churches and different churches and bad churches and churches that have split over this area of division and those that have caused division. So... Um, it says here that they were complaining. Now, the Hebrews by the Hellenists. Now, one thing I tell you guys about the early church, and I think it's somewhat important, but the early church was 100% blank. What? Was 100% what? 100% Jewish. Remember me telling you that? The gospel doesn't go to the Gentiles until Peter in Acts chapter 10. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. The church is 100% Jewish. So these are Hellenists and, and Hebrew women in the church. And, and they're dividing the daily distribution of the goods from this communal living that they had. And the Hellenist Jews come to the disciples and they say that the Hebrew Jews, women, are um, get, getting favorite, favoritism in the daily distribution. They're giving them more than us. Now, again, the Bible doesn't say who's right, who's wrong. It just deals with it. But I do notice it's the women that are fighting with the women. Just saying. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm, not, I'm not accusing anything. I'm just pointing out a fact here that the Hellenist women are fighting with the Jewish women. What's the difference? Again, both Jews. Um, the, 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 the culture of, of this day, and there was a group of Jews that was in the, dis, in the diaspora or the, the dispersing of Jews around the world. There was a, there was a heavy uh, Jewish population in Pompeii, Italy, in Rome in the days prior to Jesus in those years leading up from around the world and different places, other places of Israel. And one of the most predominant cultures of Jesus' day was the Grecian culture, Greek philosophy and Greek teaching and, um, you know, the education system. And so many of the Jews were educated um, in Grecian cultures. They were Jewish by culture and by nature. They studied the Bible. Matter of fact, they had translated, because of this great influence, the Old Testament was first translated into the Greek language. The Old Testament in Greek is called the Septuagint. You heard that term before? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. The Hebrew Jews would have studied the, they had their synagogues spoken Aramaic, the, the, the language of the day of Jesus. And, and the others would have spoken Greek and studied the Septuagint. So they all come together in, in the church as they're now, they're not Jews anymore in the, in the aspect of following the Old Testament. 
They're now born-again believers in Jesus Christ. They've received their Jews who are Messianic, who have received Jesus as their Messiah. And so they come to the apostles with this problem. And it says in verse number 3, or I'm sorry, then the 12 in verse number 2, summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Everybody say serve tables. So their solution, the disciples, is that, listen, we have priority as the apostles or the disciples, and we understand that what our job is, church is exploding and growing. There's a great need for us to preach and teach the word of God. And we cannot take our time um, divided in so many different areas that we're, we can't do our primary and our main responsibility. Now, everybody within this, this building right here, we all have different functions, and my number one function, now I have lots of hats that I wear. I love to do hospital calls. I love to be with you. And um, when you need a pastor and someone to pray for you, encourage you, somebody dies in your family, um, all of those things are a part of the many hats. But the main thing that God has called me to do as a pastor teacher is to pray and study the word and present the word of God um, that, that's been prepared, that, that's been had some, some going over. And really the job of, of a priest, the term priest, or now pastor, is the same. That I'm, my job, I'm supposed to hear from God. I'm supposed to receive from God and then give to you what God gives me. Not to say you don't receive from God yourself. That's not the point. But I'm supposed to equip you. But it takes time. I have to, I have to sit at the feet of Jesus. I can remember a guy tell me one time, contemporary of mine, he said, what I look for in a pastor, I just want somebody I know that's praying for me, praying and reading the word. He's studying the word. Because if, if you're praying and reading the word, I'm being filled up so that I have something to give. Then I have to, I have to cover and guard my time from that. And, and in this particular day, it was serving tables. Now listen, in the church and in the ministry, serving tables is very important. Being the pastor is not more important than serving tables. You have to have both. They're just a different calling. And I'm called to, to focus on, as the disciples did here, we're going to focus on preaching the word and praying and spending time with the Lord to do our first craft. Well, we need someone to work in the coffee shop. We need someone. You know you guys come in here every Sunday and the, the rows are straight. The, the floors have been vacuumed. The air has been set at the right temperature. When you come in the summer, the AC will be on. The, the, you know, things have been prepared when you, when you come for your children. Do you think all of this stuff happens miraculously? That angels and fairies come in when we leave and clean? No, there's folks that, that God has raised up here that do those things. One of the terms we use, and, and, and for these guys, they're like the deacons of the church. And deacons are the ushers and the guys who straighten the chairs and clean the bathrooms and the guys and gals, deacons and deaconesses who, who do the practical ministry of making our church function and making you guys comfortable and serving you guys. And really serving you and serving the Lord as they serve you. And so Peter and, and John and these guys say these things are needed and, and, and they're important. And as a family, we have to share together in these responsibilities. One of the things that God has done in our church, um, it started when we, we ended up in this setup that we have where our children's ministry is right on the other side of that wall. But you have to go outside and go back in to, to, to the children's ministry and the entrance is on the outside and we're all over here. We needed a safety ministry and a, and a safety team to, to post up next door and keep your kids safe while you're here. And God has been raising men up. And, and, and training them, and they're taking that ministry very seriously, and they're taking the, the security of our church and of your children very seriously, and they're doing a phenomenal job. We had, we had an incident here Wednesday night. We had this guy show up, drunk off his butt, walks in the back of the church. He doesn't know he's in a church. They told him later, 
It's like, oh, he's like, I'm in church. He's like, where am I? They're like, this is a church. Probably should cut down on a few of them F words. And every other word was the F word. And he was belligerent and acting crazy. And the safety team had to, they just sat with him. And, and they called the police. And the police came in, three cops, come in the church Wednesday night. And they walk in and they're like, hey, Rod, what are you doing, man? They knew who he was, you know, a local drunk that, uh, that, that had a reputation. The cops knew him. And, but, but, you know. There, there's there's a ministries that take place of of this position of deacon in different areas, safety team being one, ushers and greeters and cleaners and uh, coffee shop workers and all these things that we have. Greeters, there's going to be folks. There's going to be a bunch of folks. You're going to come Easter Sunday morning, and I hope you all come at 8 a.m. for breakfast and then again at 10 for church. Or is it eight? Or we do eight or nine? What do we do for breakfast? Eight seems early. Is that what we did last time? I'm up. I'm not worried about not being up, but we breakfast at 8. What do we do between 9? Anyways, we'll, 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 we'll define that. I think we maybe do 8.30. Give us a half hour between. Um, but there's going to be, you'll notice, there's just going to be a bunch of people here serving and that have got here hours before you got here to make your day great, to minister to you, to make your day special. They're going to make bacon and eggs and pancakes and serve you and and coffees and drinks and juice. And you can come in and make a plate and sit down and fellowship with your family and your friends on Easter Sunday. And that's the ministries that take place. Pat Pat is going to do a stake and study. And it's it's a ministry that we've seen other Calvary chapels do that's working. And he's going to bring it here. And it's basically we're going to give you a free steak meal. And we're going to ask you and hope that you'll invite your neighbors and your friends. And maybe a guy will come out for a free filet mignon. But he won't come out for, for a church service. And you can invite him to come out. We'll give him a free meal. And then nobody's hiding the fact that we're trying to trick him. We're just going to give him a steak so we can tell him about Jesus. But somebody's going to pay for that steak. And somebody's going to cook that steak. With the love of Jesus in their heart. That if I can get a guy who doesn't know Jesus, why would somebody do that? Why would you spend your own money, waste your own time to cook a stranger a meal to get him to come to church? There's got to be something real in there for you to do that. A real belief, a real God in heaven that you care about people you don't know enough to say, man, I want to do something to tell you what I know because what I know is life and death. What I know is heaven and hell. What I know is that if you don't have forgiveness of sins, that you won't inherit the kingdom of God. And to love people and to serve people. But we have these, these ministries in the church. Now, let's look at what the result was or the, or the resolve was here for the disciples or the apostles. Now, the two terms sometimes are synonymous. But apostles or the 12 apostles, when I use that term, we're talking about Peter and James and John and Matthew and Bartholomew and the 12 that followed Jesus for um, the three years of his earthly ministry. Those 12 men, 11 when Judas went and hung himself, replaced by, I believe very strongly, the Apostle Paul, who was God's choice to replace Judas Iscariot. Um, But those 12 men... Revelation tells us that the names of the 12 apostles are written on the 12 foundations of, of the heaven, of New Jerusalem, of the city. The names of the 12 tribes and the names of the 12 apostles. There's only 12 gates, 12, 12 places for names. So the apostles, those that's a done deal. We don't have apostles anymore. We have sometimes the ministry of an apostle, the work of an apostle. 
But the term disciple, sometimes you hear them called Jesus' disciples. Well, that's a term that, that, that all of us have. We're all, as Christ followers, you and I are disciples of Jesus. So, so these disciples or these apostles and these men, they're going to raise up. In verse 3 it says, Therefore, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and whom they may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word, the apostle said. We're not going to stop those things and wait on tables. And, and look at verse 5. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. That's an anomaly in church. It pleased the whole multitude. You know what? It's like being a referee sometimes in church. You know, I refereed as a, as a basketball official in high school and college basketball. Had a 17-year career. I was um, moving up and it was, it was, I don't know, it was a passion that I had and did a good job. I did some California State championships. Got hired to do college about seven years in and did college basketball for the last four or five years. And, um, you know, think about being a referee, right? A guy drives to the lane, drives a basket, and he goes up for a shot and he gets fouled or doesn't, and you blow the whistle and call foul. Now, immediately, what, what's just happened? You cut the audience right in half. Half of them love you, half of them hate you. If you didn't call foul on the same play, you cut the audience right in half, just the other way. Now now they love you, they hate you, they love you, they hate you. So, you know, sometimes when you make a decision, right, it doesn't matter. You can't make everybody happy. And here, this decision pleased the whole multitude. Very, very cool. Hey, verse number three, I want to draw your attention to something on, in verse number three. It says that they should, in choosing these seven men, they should be of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Why was that important? All they were doing is serving the tables. They were basically waiters and waitresses. Now, one of them, as we get to the list, is a guy by the name of Stephen. And, and draw your attention to Stephen because God's going to use this guy greatly. But, but these seven men, the first thing that they had to be is, is have a good reputation. And that, um, if you're taking notes, you can write down um, the first or second Timothy, first Timothy chapter three, the qualifications for an overseer. First Timothy chapter three, you can read through that. It goes with this. It tells us what God is looking for in the church that you're sitting in right now and what the qualifications are. If you want to be an elder or a leader or a deacon or a bishop in our church. Okay. Now, now again, the, listen, try not to be too confusing by confusing you. Deacon, bishop, an elder. These are terms you find in the Bible. Deacon, bishop, and elder. Okay? What is the difference between the three? Well, it's hard to define. They're um, synonymous in a lot of ways, like interchangeable what the, the role of a bishop, a deacon, and an elder is. They're not pastors. You know, you guys might see the guys that are serving and helping and think, oh, these are the pastors. But that's, that's, you know, like Jay last week. Jay shared at our, at our, at our baptism, right? We did baptism. And as I introduced him, I said, Pastor Jay's going to come up and he's going to share with you. But technically, we don't have any, anybody here that are technically officially pastors. Now, Jay does the ministry of a pastor. He's always done the work of a pastor. So I'll use that term from time to time. But technically and officially, we haven't laid those titles on anybody here. We have... Um, but a deacon, an elder, a bishop, these three terms, they're synonymous. For us personally, the way we define them, we have a board of elders. And those are those is one, Brian Edgett, he's not here this morning, he's always in the sound booth. We have as a church laid hands on him and given him official title and position as elder of this church. 
He, he's, and the elder is our, our elder board, is our, is our leadership board that oversees the spiritual functions, makes decisions concerning everybody's um, spiritual well-being. They're, they're the administrative arm of the church. They, they keep me accountable. They oversee me. I'm accountable to our board. We have, so we have our board that the, the church is board run. It's not congregation run. When we're deciding what color to paint the walls, we don't put out a vote to you folks. You get gray, and if you don't like it, there's a church down the street that has brown. <laughs> um, and then we, um, so, so that's elders. And then a deacon would be more like on a, like an usher, a greeter, the guys that, that serve in the, in the, in the leadership roles to, to, to help do ministry and, and also in the works roles. And then bishop, again, is kind of the same thing. It's, it's synonymous with elder and, and um, what's the other term? Bishop, elder, and deacon. Those three things, kind of interchangeable. We only kind of make a difference between an elder, which is somebody who's on our board. And doesn't the term elder mean that you're an older, wiser person? Isn't that just common sense? My elder? I think it's kind of weird when your elder is like 12, 16, 18. All right, anyways, um, so one of the requirements is that they are good reputation. Why is that important in the outside world? Well, you represent the Lord. Listen, I don't care what you do in your personal lives. I don't care if you guys danced on a pole last night or your Chippendales dancer in here and you, you shook your stuff for somebody. You're welcome here. I don't care what sexual orientation you have or feel. I don't care what you do in your personal life. You are welcome here to come to church here. You're welcome. We want you here. We welcome you here. We love you here. And hopefully, Jesus gets a hold of your heart at some time here because we're a hospital, and a hospital is supposed to have sick people in the beds that need Jesus. And we want to share the gospel with everybody, and we welcome and we love and invite everybody, no judgment, okay? But if you did happen to be one of those things that I just described, and you were doing that last night, you're not going to be in leadership here. You can't serve in a ministry here. You can't teach our children you know, and it just makes sense, right? And, and to be of good reputation, there's a true story. Pastor Damian Kyle, one of my favorite Bible teachers, Calvary Chapel Modesto, big church in Northern California. If you guys are interested in, in good podcasts, check out Cal, uh, Damian Kyle, Calvary Chapel Modesto. Damian gets a call from a woman and, and she's, she says, hey, I'm, I'm looking for a church. And, and she said, when I came to your church, she said, am I going to find good people? Am I going to find holy people? Am I going to find true people in your church and he's like what kind of question is that it's kind of weird well then she goes on and explains why in the modesto area there was a a pretty good nightlife culture going on in the you know he called it the body snatcher clubs you know we call it today hookup scene where you go there for a one night stand to meet a girl to meet a guy and dance and get drunk and go home together and there's these clubs and bars in this area they are all together and and it's well known among this group you know the hookup scene and this woman had been living in the hookup scene for a lot of years and, and her life was a mess and she was destroyed and she decided that she wanted to get out of it and she needed to come to God and she needed to find a church and she needed to come to Jesus. She was tired of this lifestyle and what it had brought her. And so she just went to a local area church close to her and she got out of her car and she was walking up the door and an usher greeter opened the door and said, welcome to such and such church. And she looks up and it's the same guy that was drunk in the bar last night trying to pick her up in the hookup scene. And she turned around and walked out. 
Now, now again, you have to be a good reputation for that reason, that, that, that the, the world's going to see you. They need to see you as somebody who's a Christ follower. And then the second one is full of the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you, this is super important, that we look for people that are full of God's Holy Spirit. How do I know or not if you're full of God's Holy Spirit? Well, what part of you do I look at to see God's Holy Spirit living inside of you? Your left eye? Oh, your T-shirt that says, I love Jesus on it, right? That, that's how I know? Right? Like there's something in your life that's intangible. But I'll tell you what. Let me tell you something about this. This is true. Other people, you know what you can't be phony about? is fruit and the Holy Spirit putting fruit in your life and the Holy Spirit in you. People are just going to see that. You can try to fake it for a season and a time. But if you're full of the Holy Spirit and you love Jesus, genuinely God is going to do something in your life that people around you are going to see. That's what we call ordination or laying hands on here at Calvary Chapel. When other people recognize a gift that you have, when we lay hands on people, as the Bible talks about this term, they're going to lay hands on these folks in a minute. I'm not imparting any, any gifts or any power to you. I don't have that. But it says for the elders and then to lay hands and pray, or actually it says pray and then lay hands is what they did. Technically, they prayed first and then they laid hands. We don't do it that way, but probably just a, a, a semantic. But the, the, I'm not imparting a gift or, or something to you. All I'm doing is recognizing that I see God has already done it in your life. You know, um, Pat is somebody that, that God has just by his own working is, is beginning to raise up as a leader in our church. You know, and it wasn't anything I did or you did or anybody did. It was a response that, that Pat's been just responding to the call of God upon his life and feels a call into ministry and feels a call to, to, you know, to those things. But when you look at him, some of the things he does, you just know God's Holy Spirit is with him. You know, he, I was out of town last week, you know, and the Morgans had a car accident. And who was there with you the, the day that that happened? Pat's there with you the day it happens in the hospital and, you know, ministering to your family, calling me and saying, hey, this is what happened. This was, he didn't say, what should I do? He said, this is what I did. I went and I took care of this and I did this. And you could just see the spirit of God moving in his, in his life and in his heart. And you can see that. You can see that on folks. I see that on a lot of you. Not, you know, I picked on Pat, but I can see that on a, on a lot of you guys, that move of the Holy Spirit in your, in your heart and in your life. So these men had to be full of the Holy Spirit. And it was necessary. And then the last thing is they had to be wise or they had to have wisdom. Do you guys know the difference between wisdom? Why is this highlighted? What's the difference between wisdom and knowledge? It's application, right? How do you apply the knowledge that you have to a situation? Wisdom is the ability to apply your knowledge to a situation to make the outcome the best that it can be. You know, Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. Somebody say amen. He wrote the Proverbs and some of the Psalms. So if you're looking for wisdom, you start there and go to the Proverbs of Solomon. Two women both had a baby on the same night. And a couple of days later, one of the women's babies died. And the woman who had a live baby, the woman who had the dead baby took it and she switched it with the woman who had the live baby. And they woke up in the morning and there was one dead baby and one live baby. And they both claimed that the live baby was theirs and they brought it to King Solomon and, and, and they both were arguing which one it belonged to. And he has to decide who it belongs to. And so finally he says, I've had enough of this. He called the soldiers in. He said, take a sword and cut the baby in half. Give this woman half and give this woman the other half. And one woman stopped him and said, no, please, please give her the baby. It's okay. Don't cut him in half. Solomon said, that's the mama. Give her the baby. <laughs> you know, the wisdom of, of, of Solomon and, you know, to be able to apply that. You know, it's true, and I met some folks this way. The people that are the most intellectually intelligent people, socially they're awkward. 
and they have a hard time. They have a hard time functioning in school and in social settings and other things. They're brilliant, the Einsteins. Who's the Tesla guy again? I'm drawing a blank. Elon Musk. He kind of fits in that category. Like, awkward as heck on Joe Rogan. <laughs> Smoking weed because he just didn't know how to say no. And, you know, and his shares go through the floor when he, he's on Joe Rogan. But super, super brilliant guy. And, and sometimes there's a big difference between knowledge and wisdom. You know, we have a problem here in the foyer or something goes on. You know, somebody may freak out or react. I don't know how to handle this. What do I do? And somebody else that has a gift of wisdom or has some wisdom and come over and say, hey, first do this, second do this, third do this. Now that person can jump in action and do what they've been told. But, but again, these, these folks were required to have the gift of wisdom and it's necessary. And then um, in verse 6 it says, And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them, and the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient um, to the faith. So I love this. They, they were um, many of the priests, which were the Orthodox Jews that were um, hardcore religious Jews, were coming to faith in Jesus. The church, the term multiplying, remember I asked you to highlight that in verse 1. It's also mentioned here, the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So they were growing um, they, they, were, they were multiplying. And then it says in Stephen, now we get more information about Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia. So the synagogue, these were again Jewish synagogues. These were not believers in Jesus who had not joined the church at this time. And in, in this place called Cilicia, is interested, it's mentioned here, because in Cilicia, there was a young man by the name of Saul of Tarsus who attended and was a leader in this church. And so he, we're introduced here to a guy, one of these seven that the apostles chose, named Stephen, who, spoiler alert, is going to become the first martyr of the early church in, in Acts chapter 7. They're going to kill him. It's Paul, who at the time is Saul, is going to be there consenting to his death. But Stephen who was called to wait tables, is now going to be used mightily of God. He, he always had these gifts and, and this ability to communicate. But he was, he was in the church serving tables, waiting and, and, and fighting, breaking up fights between the Hellenists and the Hebrew women. You know what? Sometimes, listen, all the time, not sometimes, all the time, God has a call on your life. The greater the call of God on your life, the longer the training period. Moses, who had an amazing ministry and call of God, you realize he was trained for 80 years, 40 years in Egypt, then 40 years in the, in the, in this, in the desert, 80 years old, he goes back to Egypt and tells Pharaoh to let my people go. And what God was preparing Moses for his heart, Moses was the most humble man that ever lived. We know that because he told us that. But, the, the, the training of the Apostle Paul. How long was the Apostle Paul trained? You guys read in your Bible that Paul gets saved in Acts chapter 10, knocked off his, knocked to the ground, the great light comes, scales on his eyes, Barnabas is laying hands on him, praying for him three days later. And then the next chapter, Paul's preaching and, and doing miracles and, and, and going on. But what you miss, if you pay attention, there's 14 years in between 10 and 11. Because God, why? Because God was training Paul. 
God was equipping him. Three years, Paul's on the backside of the Sinai Desert by himself where the Lord Jesus personally is appearing to him and training him and teaching him. But you miss that. Listen, anywhere where God's called you, if God's called you to something great, there's a season of training. And don't, don't despise that season. You've got to walk through it. We have a Bible college. We have opportunity for, for mainly for our young people that, that, that feel a call of, of God on their lives. If they want to go, talk to me. We have a, an inn with Calvary Chapel Bible College. A ten, it's only a 10-month program, an intense 10-month training program for the gospel and for the word of God and for personal growth in Jesus Christ. You know, I was talking to Jason and Pat both, and, you know, both of them at different times. Jason's doing it online right now, going to school. I've said, man, I would, I would love an opportunity to, you know, go and do that. But they're at a stage of life now, married with kids. They'll never be able to go back and do that. But when you're young, we have our young people, and they're in that season where they're still single and, and unmarried. We need to encourage them in those things, moving in that direction, because it's 10 months of your life, and you can never get it back. And once you get married and start having kids, you'll never again have the opportunity to separate out a, a, a period of time just to focus on growing in Jesus. Just really getting close to the Lord and getting, knowing the Word of God. But we have that opportunity. And so we, you know, we want to take advantage of that. So, hey, look at this. My favorite verse, and I probably say this about a lot of verses, but this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and I'm being serious. Verse number 10. And they were not able. Somebody say, not able. Couldn't do it. To resist, you're supposed to say that too. To resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. You guys catch that? They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. So they were having arguments with Stephen. These, listen, this is Saul. This is Gamaliel. This is the finest Hebrew Jewish scholars of the day. Paul, because of the intellect and the mind that he gave him, He's going to go stand on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, and he's going to intellectually be on the level of the Epicurean philosophers at Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17 in Athens, Greece, as he's intellectually debating with them and sharing the gospel with them. His mind was sharp. And these guys' minds, every one of them, were built this way. These guys were sharp. And they're going back and forth with Stephen, who's sharing the gospel, that Jesus was their Messiah, that they missed Jesus as their Messiah. And it got to the point where it says the spirit by which he spoke, they couldn't resist. And you had the smartest, wisest minds in the world at this time talking to Stephen going, oh, well, 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 oh, 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 oh. they didn't know what to say. And everything he said was just like, Whoa. have you guys ever had this happen to you? Nobody? Yeah, you have. You know, when I first moved to Utah, I used to like to debate certain folks. And I wasn't very good at it. I thought I would be. But I was getting beat up left and right, man. Like people were leaving feeling better about their, their faith than before I started talking to them. And I just wasn't good at it. And I was like, you know, you know, and I was, and sometimes, you know, but, and, 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 and there was a particular family in my neighborhood. And um, very, very, very strong um, uh, family, great family. They were first people to welcome us when we moved into our neighborhood. And then she asked me what I did, and I told her what I did, and she almost dropped the cookies on the floor. I'm not kidding. She was trying to contain her shock, but she didn't know how to, and she had the plate of cookies, and you're a Christian pastor? And I thought she was just going to drop the cookies on the thing, but we became friends. And, and I would go to them and ask them some questions from time to time. I'd learn something. So I remember hearing that Hitler got um, baptized for the dead and sealed to his wives, and I was pretty upset. 
and I wanted to hash this one out with somebody. So they were the ones I knew to go to and talk to. And I, you know, that day I found that out. I wasn't even going to slow the car down. I just told myself, I'm going to drive right through their garage. I'm going to slam the doors open. I'm going to kick the garage door into the house. And I'm going to go in and ask him, what in the world is going on with this? You know, and, but I didn't. You know, instead, what I did was I went home and, and didn't, didn't talk to him about it. I just began to pray for them and really wanted to minister and have a way. And, and, and so I prayed. And honestly, for like legitimately spent time by name praying for this, this neighbor family of mine that reached out to us when we first came here. Six months. And had a few conversations over the time with really no fruit. But really spent some time praying for them. And praying that God would give me an opportunity to say something to them that made sense. And one night, I'm home. Lydia's gone. And maybe the ladies Bible stuff. There's a Tuesday night or something. And just me home. And, and maybe the boys are home. I don't remember. And I get a knock at the door about 6.30. And I open the door. And it's this, this, this couple, this family from, from down the street. And they said, hey, we want to talk to you about a few things. I just lit up like the 4th of July. I was like, all right. So, so we sat down for two and a half hours, and, and we began to talk about some things that we wanted to talk about. And this verse really came to life. It, they, it says, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which I spoke. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which I spoke. And they were also saying things like, well, 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 well we believe that too. Well, we be-. And they didn't know what to say. And, and it was super different than all the other conversations I had where I got beat up and didn't know what to say. And I was going, whoa, 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 you know, and they were feeling much better about themselves when they were gone. The difference was I had committed this one to prayer and I didn't try to do it in the flesh. The spirit of God showed up, did something supernatural that I obviously didn't have. So listen, as the spirit of God fills your life sometimes and fills your heart, Jesus said to you to encourage you that you don't have to worry about what you're going to say. In that very moment, the Holy Spirit will give you the words that you need. Just be faithful. What I want to add to you and encourage you in is that if you do have that, you pray for people. If you're not willing to pray for somebody, don't waste your time trying to share the gospel with them. Don't, don't use words if you're not willing to first. And I, I, when I say pray, I have to qualify this sometimes, right? That doesn't mean you, you, know, you text somebody some praying hands. I'm praying for you, brother. And that's the extent of it. Like when I say pray, I, I mean you got to get on your knees, you got to, or you got to walk, or you got to get in your jacuzzi, or you got to literally say words to God about that person. You got to, and, and and be diligent about it. And you know what? That day, that particular day, I had this experience of Stephen. And and what was super fascinating was at the time they had no idea, but a short time later, the husband of this family I was telling you about, he worked for Pepsi. He got a job offer in Colorado. And, and they came to tell me they were going to be moving um, to take this job offer that he got in Colorado. And I don't know what's happened since then. But in my mind, I always felt like God needed and God was doing something in their, in their lives. And he needed to get them out of here in order to continue the work that he had started. And I'm praying and hoping that, that someday I'm going to hear back that that's exactly what happened with this family. That they're now following Jesus. And they're growing. But it was the Spirit of God that, that, that made that happen. Amen? All right, I'm so out of time, you guys. So uh, I guess we'll pick up in verse 11. We only got five verses to finish next week. Um, and then we'll get into seven. Seven's going to be Stephen's. Read ahead, please. Read the rest of six, all of seven. Read back if you want to. Start in one and read through like chapter eight. That way you'll catch a little behind, a little ahead. Um, next week we'll finish this up and get into verse seven. I know it's a little bit over, but do we got time for a song? Let's do a song. Um, Stand and let's stand.
<clears throat> hey, we're not going to have the prayer room open today, um, but we are going to be up front to pray for you. And we want to encourage you guys, if you've got something going on in your life and you like individual prayer, that um, our, our leaders, our elders um, will be up front to pray for you guys and encourage you. If you want to ask the Lord in your heart, if you're not sure if you're born again believer in Jesus Christ, and you want to make sure that you know that you know that you know you're saved, um, you just say yes to Jesus. You come up and let one of the elders, leaders, pastors know that you, you'd like to receive Jesus in your heart. They'll lead you in a simple prayer. Maybe you have a praise report, something good going on in your life. You know, I never as a church, right? Jesus said, I will build my house and my house shall be called a house of what? Prayer. My, everybody, my house shall be called a house of? Prayer. I didn't see some lips moving in the back. My house shall be called a house of? Prayer. Prayer. So Christians, don't think it's strange that when we get together in God's house that we want to pray. Amen? So to pray for one another, with one another, over one another. Doesn't mean anybody's life's falling apart. Doesn't mean that, that something bad is happening. It just means that we're obedient to the word of God and we're unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we understand we all have a need to love one another and share life with one another. So if you have anything going on in your life, I don't want you to be afraid to, to just ask for a prayer. It's something that we try to take seriously here. Most Sundays we have a place in the back where you can, if you're not comfortable coming up here, you can go back there and meet with folks and they're going to pray for you. And But your, your prayer needs are going to be met. There's prayer cards um, little purple cards where you write down your prayer request and you drop it in the prayer box over there and know this if you write something down there's one up there if you write something down on that purple card and you drop it in the prayer box your prayer requests are being prayed for by a whole team of people here if you want to join that team of people and help us pray over our church and over those people you see darlene and kevin they'll get you squared away and there's a sign-up sheet also in the foyer if you want to be a part of the prayer ministry but but prayer is something that's so important maybe you know, you have an unsaved loved one or family, or maybe you have a neighbor that you'd like to share the gospel with like I did. And, and you just write their names on this thing, and let's start praying over them and for them. And, and pray that God would give you a divine opportunity to speak with the wisdom that's full of the Holy Spirit that they can't contend with. Amen? Pretty cool when it happens. It doesn't happen all the time, but pretty cool when it happens. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. Lord, as a church, as we just sing our one last song today, Lord, we just want to solidify what you've already done in our hearts and lives. Lord, that you would pour out your spirit upon this place. And Lord, help us in this during this last three minutes to love each other, to serve each other, to meet each other's needs in a genuine and real way. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have needs, if you'd like individual prayer, please come forward. Um, and let's, let's worship the Lord together. Amen.